On Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz, we take a cinematic excursion through the work of groundbreaking Filipino thespian Vic Diaz. Welcome to Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz. On this episode, we're looking at Eddie Romero's Beyond Atlantis from 1973, starring Patrick Wayne, John Ashley, Sid Haig, and of course, Vic Diaz as Manuel. <laughs> I'm Liam O'Donnell, and with me as always is the Barracuda, Doug Tilly. I like that you changed it to the Barracuda, Doug. In case people are wondering, I usually let Doug pick his own nickname because, uh, you know, I don't want to pick for him. You know, it gives him a little sense of self-respect, you know. But anyways, Doug, how are you doing? I'm holding back a lot of comments about the motivations (laughs) behind these things. Liam, I'm doing really well. Uh, The Barracuda, it it wasn't just picked out of thin air. Vic Vic Diaz's character in this film, his nickname is also... The Barracuda. the Barracuda, which by by the way, we'll get to this. It's funny that his nickname is the Barracuda, and no one takes him seriously to the end of the movie. Yes, like exactly. It's like, yeah, his name is the Barracuda. He's probably like not trustworthy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everyone's like this jerk off. He's probably an idiot. I mean, really. It's one of the source points in the movie where I believe there's some underlying racism, right? Like, yeah. the white people think they can do whatever they want. And then it turns out Filipinos have self-agency uh, uh, and can actually make their own decisions. It's weird. <laughs> if they're indeed supposed to be Filipino. I don't think they ever mentioned the Philippines. Oh, that's true. Movie. That's true. That's true. There's sometimes a suggestion that maybe they're in Mexico for a lot of it instead. But No, no, no they show a map. They show a map. Oh, right, right, right. The map um, makes it clear they're in the Philippines. I also think it's interesting that in 1973, when this movie was made, they expected that the audience would know what a barracuda was, but piranha fish were so out there that they had to come up with like like man-eating fish and call them that instead. When we see some some yeah, deadly fish in this film, at one point they call them cannibal fish, and I'm like, cannibal they're, fish. That's they're right. They're not cannibals. They're eating you. That's not cannibalism. <laughs> that doesn't make that's any right. sense. <laughs> if, if they were cannibals, they wouldn't be a problem because they'd all be killing themselves. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, so w- one of the, the features of this film that I think I wanted to discuss before we get into the movie itself is our buddy Sid Haig is in this. And we've seen him a couple times now on this show. And it's really hard to talk about this period of uh, you know filmmaking in the Philippines sure, without talking about Sid Haig. And what I realized is, I don't think we spent a lot of time talking about him as an actor. And I just wanted to get a feel from you, Doug. Like, uh, are you a Sid Haig fan? When did you first become familiar with him? Is this, is this one of those, like, you got to know him because of Rob Zombie and then you went back and figured out who he was? Like, talk to me about you and and uh, character actor Sid Haig. You know, I my memory is that Sid Haig didn't have a lot of profile in the 1990s. I think he actually retired from acting for a while in the 1990s. I agree. Yeah. Um, and so I remember certainly seeing him in like black exploitation movies like Coffee and Foxy Brown uh, when I was getting into those kind of movies. But I didn't really think of myself as a Sid Haig fan, or I, I would probably recognize him because he was such a recognizable figure and had such a recognizable face. But I mean, if we're gonna, we kind of have to give Rob Zombie credit for. 
giving him such a large part in the House of Thousand Corpses and its sequels that it really did make him, you know, made people kind of sit up and take notice. Oh, wait, this guy has had this unbelievable career and has been a lot in a lot of these exploitation classics um, and and gave people a better appreciation of him. We're in kind of a unique position because you're right. A lot of these Filipino movies in the 1970s, these exploitation movies, feature Sid Haig in fairly large parts and really kind of cemented him. And we're, we're seeing a lot of these performances back to back. I don't know if I would have called myself a Sid Haig fan before, but certainly since starting this podcast, I've gotten a much bigger appreciation for him as a performer. And he is so much fun and such a welcome presence in these movies. He really kind of brings a similar thing that Vic Diaz does, right? When he shows up, you're like, oh, thank goodness, we get... We get a professional here. We get someone who's going to do something interesting. And maybe it's just because I'm feeling particular affection because in this movie, which I think we both have mixed feelings on, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit, he is terrific in it. He's so much fun. What do you think it is about Sid Haig that he, um, I mean, you know, for 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 a few listeners who are not as familiar with the 70s, which I don't think is a lot of people, but there might be some younger people that don't realize that it was pretty common for white dudes to play everything. You know, yeah. if, if if you could pull it off, you could be uh, Arabic or Native uh, American or Latino or Filipino or whatever it was that the director decided they thought you could do. Uh, but Sid Haig, of the people asked to do this, is one of the more believable folks where in one movie he's got an accent and you think he might be, you know, part of the indigenous population. Sure. In the next movie, he's like the whitest dude who ever did white and doesn't know <laughs> how he ended up in the Philippines. How did I end up here in the Philippines anyway? I wouldn't know my way around here if you paid me money. You know, like he, he could really own, you know, from a from a smooth talking hippie to a really uh, regressive mobster, Sid Haig just had a cornucopia of jerk-offs that he could embody. Almost always jerk-offs. Occasionally not, but almost always some form of bad dude. Uh, but in that, a real variety of bad dudes. What, what do you think it is about Sid Haig that he was able to do that? I think there's just, considering what he looks like, and I'm not saying that he was ugly or, or unattractive or c- couldn't play roles where he's supposed to be a handsome character, but he's so distinctive looking that the fact that he his characters tend to carry such a swagger is almost it adds a, almost a, a, a ear of, of comedy to them even when they're serious right. characters yes. yes right so it's like he's so confident and he thinks of himself as such a badass that when these characters get undermined a little bit or have to show themselves as slightly cowardly or maybe that they're just not in the control that they think they're in it they're both serious and somewhat comical at the same time and I think that he envelops that so perfectly when we think about things like the big bird cage where he's playing like that that you know a sleazy character but still kind of lovable he basically is that character in so many different movies sometimes he's the good guy as that character sometimes he's the bad guy as this character but he's still some sort of variation on that it's not like he does a lot of kind of stretching of that in a lot of the films that we've covered on this particular sure. podcast yeah but like in beyond atlantis it's kind of an interesting character because it's he's not a good guy and he's never pretending to be a good guy but I do think that by the end of the movie, it's not that you necessarily even want him to succeed, but you don't want him to get killed. You want to see, you know, he's, he's fun in the way that he's um, he's bad, but he's not necessarily evil, I guess is what I should say. Whereas he knows what he is. He's a slimy guy who does what he does and, and is unapologetic about it. And I think there's something kind of admirable about that. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's true. I think that he is... Um... 
he can play bad guys that are irredeemable and has with great aplomb. Uh, but my favorite is when he wants you to think he's a badass, and then it's revealed that he doesn't have a heart of gold, but he's a little more uh, uh, well-meaning than he wants you to think. That's my favorite Sid Hay character. Yeah, absolutely. The, the guy who's like, oh, he's a bandit, but you know, he doesn't want to hurt anybody. You know, like, <laughs> fucking love that. That's like my favorite thing. Uh, but yeah, there's just something about him where he really embodies these these men um, and uh, manages to make them charming even when they're gross. And there's something about that that I think is is very compelling. And really, he his career, it, it didn't start in the Philippines. But no. it's it's impossible to think of this era of of B movies in the Philippines and not think of Sid Haig. He's an essential what, figure. What was he doing in the Philippines in the seventies? I think like, he what? just I think he came out for the movies and then just didn't leave for like eight years, nine years. <laughs> uh, it's funny that he you can believe that Sid Haig in a movie could be in a relationship with Pam Greer, possibly the most attractive woman to exist ever. And, like, you can believe that because of the swagger that he carries himself with. But also, if the movie wanted to present him as a horrifically grotesque character, you'd believe that as well. Which is just a testament to, kind of, again, how he carries himself, how he presents his himself in the movie. There's just something – his confidence could make you believe just about anything. Yeah, I mean, 100% because the the thing that you come to believe, right, is that – it's not about his looks. Again, not trying to say he's a horribly unattractive man, uh, but you come to believe that um, that the these women are attracted to his swagger, to his personality, to his confidence. You know, right. and and I can't help but feel it too. Like, yeah, he is pretty cool. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> and and where does that come from? I don't know. Uh, but again, it, it, as an actor, the fact that he is able to make you believe that about such a variety of people is, I think, a testament to his ability. And again, um, to uh, or at least to me, he is a welcome figure. And I think to you, too, right, that that it's like, oh, man, uh, uh, I don't know. I guess what I'm <laughs> what I'm partly thinking of here is how many actors can be like. There aren't that many people who have the span that he has too. That he started, like he started pretty early on, um, in some movies that might be considered B movies. Like he was in Bloodbath, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but then also was doing like you know TV work and then some other stuff that maybe is a little more recognizable, you know. Like I, I don't know. There's just something about it that you could say like, oh, Sid Haig, you know, he was in The Big Dollhouse. He was in um, THX 1138. He was, in, you know what I mean? Like, sure. That he just had such a variety of things, but also was always sort of himself in a certain sense and a way that, like, it's a comfort to see him. Right. I think that's actually a really key point, which is that you, you, it, I think it, it, it's one of the reasons people have such affection for him is because there's something in him, of him in those performances, and you can tell that it's a part of his real personality that it's what you're seeing. I wanted to get your take, Liam. I didn't realize this, that um, according to his Wikipedia at the very least, that Sid Haig was offered the role of Marcellus Wallace in Pulp Fiction, uh, obviously didn't take it. How, how, how do you think that performance would have been? It would have been way more over the top, and it yes, I don't think I don't think it would have worked. The reason Marcellus Wallace works in Pulp Fiction is because it's so strained, 
you know, it's so I want to say restrained, but it's not just restrained. It, it the, that actor as Marcellus Wallace, he's like he doesn't want to be there. It feels like, and that's the character. Like the character's just like I don't know. There, there's just something about it where I just think Sid Haig wouldn't have been able to help himself. He would have been loud and over the top and added something maybe even comedic to the character, which would not have worked in the movie. I'm just trying to think of, of if in Pulp Fiction, when Samuel L. Jackson is asking, what does Marcellus Wallace look like? He would have to, the guy would have to say he's bald and he's white. <laughs> uh, it, it would, it would definitely change the movie in a number of different ways. Also hard to imagine that him saying that he's going to um, go medieval on someone's ass. It is fair though, like you were saying, he was pretty low key out of acting. Like, yeah, you know, he's only a hypnotherapist at the time. He's only doing TV through the 80s, and then he's pretty much gone in the 90s until Jackie Brown in 1997. Yeah, and that's That's only a small part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and I think that's one of the reasons that, that he just, those were the years that I was getting into a lot of, particularly cult and exploitation movies. And again, I would have seen him in a lot of things, but definitely he, he wasn't. He didn't have the level of of profile that he would have um, up until Rob Zombie started to give him larger parts in his movies. So I think no matter what you think of Rob Zombie, uh, you got to give him credit for that. The only thing I'll hold against him is that he also was tricked into being in 2009's Dark Moon Rising. <laughs> a, 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 a crime I have not yet forgiven Eric Roberts or anyone else involved in that film for. What about Billy Blanks? Yeah, that guy's also got – he owes me one. <laughs> what would you do if I ever met Billy Blanks and I immediately started yelling at him about Dark Moon Rising? He'll probably say, I wasn't even in it. And he'd both be right and not be right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. We're going to take a break. I'm glad we got to talk about Sid Haig. It's, we, we couldn't do a – I mean, I quite honestly think you can't do a podcast about Vic Diaz and not spend some time talking about Sid Haig. You know, I think they work together not only a lot but with great success. Uh, but, I, you know, let's take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about 1973's Beyond – Atlantis. Underwater warriors in a savage struggle for survival. I will not sacrifice myself. You will not! You will not! Beyond dreams, beyond thought, beyond Atlantis. Astounding the imagination, ravishing the senses. The siren of the sea, rising through rapture serene. Afloat on waves of pleasure. In a bed of pearls. The ancient army of Atlantis clashing with modern soldiers of science. Atlantis must conquer or die. A primeval princess leads her people from a kingdom beneath the sea to a blazing battleground above. Beyond Atlantis. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. A band of adventurers invade a native island determined to grab a reported fortune and buried treasure. Or pearls, whatever. The islanders are just as determined to keep their sacred treasure and also are weird-looking. Complications ensue. It's 1973's Beyond Atlantis. I, I, in case you couldn't tell, I, I made my own edits to that write-up. Yeah. Editorializing know? there on the plot description. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, directed by Eddie Romero. Uh, 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 if you've been listening to this podcast, you're familiar with the name. Uh, screenwriter, film director, and producer. He, he's He is like the Filipino filmmaker. We've already covered a number of his films, but in case you forget, he did 1968's Brides of Blood, 1974's Black Mama, White Mama, a favorite of mine. Uh, 1971's Beast of Blood, 1972's The Twilight People, 1974's uh, Savage Sisters, which is amazing, Doug, because you know what shirt I have on right now? What? Rough Cut's release of Savage Sisters. I'm wearing oh. it right now. Didn't even think about that, that we were doing this today. Uh, and 1977's Seven Death, you know, this podcast maybe one day will uh, transmute into a Filipino uh, shot film podcast instead of just Vic Diaz. That would be fun. That might happen someday when we run out of Vic Diaz specific movies. Uh, <laughs> and if we did that, then we would just cover a ton more uh, Eddie Romero movies. Sure. The, the, the guy was prolific. And uh, I'll be honest, if you like these kinds of movies, he's not just prolific. He's skilled. He's good at making Absolutely. the sort of schlock I want to see. And the fact that this movie maybe isn't the kind of schlock I want to see is something we're going to have to talk about. He also, unlike like Sirio Santiago, who we've talked about in so many movies, uh, sorry, so many episodes of this so far. Sure. He's, an, he's a director who made tons and tons of really beloved Filipino movies, which we have no Agreed. idea about whatsoever, right? I mean, he, he was considered a top quality director to the point where he even got, you know, uh, Western work, let's say. Yeah. Also written by uh, Charles Eric Johnson, who wrote a number of black exploitation features like Hammer, Mean Mother, and Slaughter's Big Ripoff, as well as uh, one of my favorite movies of all time, The Monkey Hustle. Me too. I love that movie. It's so fucking good. Oh my God. <laughs> this is not a, mo- a Monkey Hustle podcast. Although maybe we should start a black exploitation podcast. Who knows? Uh, and then also co written by Stephanie Rothman. Um, she was the first lady to be awarded the Directors Guild of America Fellowship. Uh, she was associate producer on Queen of Blood, Beach Ball, and Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet. Um, she co-wrote and co-directed uh, the flick Bloodbath, which we talked about just a moment ago. Yeah, uh, and she made her solo directorial debut with a frothy beach party type romp. It's a bikini world, a movie I've never heard of, but I'm now <laughs> interested in. Um, there's a whole bunch more here that I'm not going to read. Yeah, she directed The Student Nurses in The Velvet Vampire. I mean, she yeah. basically worked for Roger Corman in the 70s. I mean, one of the few women making I mean, directing movies. And straight up, if people – Velvet Vampire is great. I mean, yeah, yeah. to give you an idea, The Velvet Vampire is a Corman movie that I watched on the Criterion channel. So that yeah. gives you the idea of the kind of movie it is. Um, as we've already said – I mean, they, they sorry, they just did – they had a program of Doris Wishman stuff fairly recently. So that's <laughs> – Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> So good. So good stuff is what you're saying. Uh, this uh, cast uh, um, included uh, Patrick Wayne, John Ashley, as we already said, Sid Haig, Lenore Stevens, and of course, uh, Vic Diaz, um, and Eddie Garcia as the mate. Uh, it's worth noting, and something we're going to discuss about this, is that uh, this film feels like it's sort of straddling two worlds. It has all the elements from uh, bikini-clad ladies to Sid Haig of a true filthy <laughs> exploitation movie. And yet uh, it has the actual content of uh, not a Disney film because there is some violence and stuff in it, but certainly like a, almost like a made for TV level adventure movie. It, it's a real mix of worlds. And, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, that was, uh, according to you, Doug, my informative person here, <laughs> uh, because of the casting of Patrick Wayne, uh, John Wayne's son, uh, 
I don't know. Maybe that works. Maybe that doesn't work. Um, before we get into any of those details, I just wanted to get a general feel from you. What you thought of this movie? I get the feeling that you have some mixed feelings on this movie the same way that I do. I do, but I did have a lot of fun with it. I have to say I enjoyed it more than I didn't. One of the difficulties with this movie is that it has a lot of underwater footage, and it's all very impressive. Like, it's all well shot, but it. But it's we're supposed a lot to be, of it, Doug. Yeah, it, we're supposed to be so impressed by it that we're just, like, in awe of the fact that people are just kind of swimming underwater for extended periods of time. And at, at the halfway mark of this movie, I was like, that is enough. I don't need to see one more goddamn... I mean, look, seeing people in fr- fur bikinis... <laughs> <laughs> Swim uh, enchantingly under the sea is nice, but it it you do get you do get sick of it well before this movie is over. Uh, but I thought the the kind of central conceit, the idea that these characters who are all kind of greedy or have their own self interest in in mind, coming to this island trying to get the quote unquote treasure, these these pearls, these very valuable pearls that are there, and kind of uh, engaging with the local population, who as you mentioned, they're supposed to be. A, people from Atlantis, and B, everyone except for the guy who runs the whole um, uh, tribe, let's say, uh, and his daughter, they all have these weird bug eyes for some reason. We're told it's because they're incestuous. They never really explain why those particular characters don't have that, um, but but whatever. That's just something that happens in the movie. And then it's this mix of like a 1950s science fiction movie, very kind of traditional, very um, very chased in a lot of ways and then that's combined with some of these exploitation elements though it never goes as far as you think it's going to and then there's a hint uh, more than a hint really of the treasure of the sierra madre where there's a lot of infighting among these criminals who are all getting more and more greedy as they see the the amount of wealth that they could have there because the, the fact is and one of the interesting things about this movie is there's a point where they all could have left and they all would have been totally fine, right? That that they wouldn't have been. No one would have tried to stop them. They could have left and been and made a, a lot of money off of what the pearls that they they had. But because they wanted to stay on and get as much as they possibly could, uh, that ends up biting them at the end. Though I have to say, the thing that I like most about this movie is like the final five minutes where Vic Diaz turns on these guys. That it looks like he's going to rob all. He's going to steal all of their pearls that they've collected. The the box of pearls falls overboard, and then. <laughs> And then there's a suggestion that kind of the sleaziest character is like, we can just stay here. We can we can uh, map out this entire area. We'll dive and eventually we'll find the pearls. And everyone just laughs and laughs and laughs, even though they were just trying to kill each other moments before. It's a very strange movie is what I'm trying to say. It is. Um, there's a lot of things to say about it. Let's just, again, come back to the genre for a second. Sure. Um, is this a exploitation adventure film? Is this an adventure film that has exploitation elements? Is this just a slightly more salacious uh, Disney live action movie? Like, how would you describe this movie in a way that helps people understand sort of the the ways it functions genre wise? It's funny because it kind of feels like a 1950s Roger Corman movie, right? Yes, um, and it's this Roger Corman was not involved in producing this at all, um, but it feels like the movies that Roger Corman was making in the 1970s did not feel like his 1950s movies. This feels like if Roger Corman was still making the same kind of movies he was making in the 50s in the 1970s, except without that eye towards exploitation that he always brings you, to his movies. You can feel, when you were describing the underwater scenes, I think something that's important to say, it's not just that, um, as a modern audience, underwater photography is just not that fucking interesting. You know what yeah. I mean? Like It's just not that fascinating. But also, you can feel that the movie wants these people to be naked. 
Yes. Like 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 at, at minimum it wants them to be topless because yes. that would be much more up the alley of this kind of filmmaking to be like, well, this scene's a little too long, but look, boobies. Yeah, exactly, right. But they try to make up for it by just having like asses up next to the camera for a lot of it. But I mean, they're fur covered asses, so it's not nearly as interesting. I mean, yeah, and let's be clear: fur bikinis are not sexy. Like that's yeah. just not a thing. <laughs> it's a lot of is, fur in this for some reason. It's very. I don't know why Atlantis <laughs> means we have fur bikinis. I don't get it. You know what I mean? It doesn't. There's very little about it actually that ties it to Atlantis in any particular way. But that's the other thing, Liam, which is like you you hear the title and you're like, oh, they're gonna like they'll be like underground cities and ruins. This movie takes place on an island, right? There's a lot of underwater footage, but it's just people swimming around. It's not it's not them I mean, actually doing l- anything. L- let's really demystify this. This is a movie about an island of inbred people who yes. might actually be from the Mediterranean. And I guess that explains why they're white, even though, uh, despite what you said, the movie very much establishes that they're in Asia right now. So, like, because we see the Pacific Ocean. So, like, right. even if they're not coming from Manila to this island, they're definitely in the area that would be the Philippines or Indonesia sure. or something mm-hmm. like that. So then there's an island that is, uh, and let's just say the the people who look human are clearly white people. It's obvious that some of the extras might not be white people, but who sure. knows because they have bug eyes, they have fish <laughs> eyes, so you can't really tell what the, is going on there. But the point is is that like um, the only part of this, I guess, that makes sense with Atlantis is that these folks can apparently swim underwater for a long time, though the movie never establishes that they have gills. They just no. can hold their breath for a long time. Yeah. It's very strange. It's It doesn't feel like any of those aspects were thought out, uh, which brings me, I guess, sort of roundabout to the other part of this that I wanted to ask you about, which is like the part of the movie that feels like it has all the thought behind it is not – the cosmology of the Atlanteans or not, right? <laughs> it's it's the morality tale. This is a yeah. fucking movie about greed and not just about greed, I would argue, but also about colonialism in, in the way that it's manifest in this archaeology lady. I mean, in a very real sense, except for like one slightly mopey fisherman, there are no redeemable characters in this film. Like everyone I think sucks. I do think we're supposed to think that the – the, the doctor, the woman who's there to study them, that she is supposed to be a good guy. But I'm with you. It's just like... She, she sucks so bad. Yeah, she does. She literally... Like, literally, the, the island people have not done anything shitty yet. And they go, okay, okay, I know you want to explore, but some of this stuff is sacred to us, so we need you to stay in the area we've made for you. And she's like, fuck that. I gotta, I gotta do whatever I want. I'm a scientist. You can't tell me what to do. That's right. And I guess to a 1970-whatever audience, they're like, yeah, that makes sense. She's a scientist. But in 2022, which is where we are now, I'm like, this woman is the fucking worst. She's she's Cortez over here. Like, yeah. fuck the natives. I'll do what I want. You know. I mean, she's she's better than some of the other characters. Like, uh, she seems pretty good compared to the man who's ready to murder all of his compatriots just to get a couple more pearls. You know. And really, I I, I kind of want to come back here. Uh, not that we need to spend too much time on the ending, but I do want to talk a little bit about the ending. Only in that, what I think is crazy about the ending is that it seems to think that. Once everyone sees how crazy this one guy is, they all go, oh, we're all being assholes and start laughing. Like, it's almost like that's what we're all supposed to get is like, oh, that dude's the worst. At least we're not that dude, which is like not what would happen at all, by the way. <laughs> like, I, I got to be honest, and this, this this might reveal too much about me. That guy, obviously, piece of shit, garbage person. They make that very clear throughout the whole thing. But after all they've been through, 
he's probably right, right? I mean, it, it's, not that, <laughs> it's not that far down. They should map it out. It's worth like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. It would be worthwhile for them to mark the spot and come back and dive and get it at the very least. I get it. You're not supposed to be greedy and all that, but Jesus, otherwise it was all for nothing. You know what? I will actually love it. I was going to, I had so many jokes I was trying to make fun of you about. But honestly, you're not totally wrong. Like, they are already divers, right? And unlike before, where they were invading an indigenous culture and, and risking the, the right. future, by the way, they basically, they, they, the movie is never explicit about it. But they basically casually commit genocide. You yes, know, because, absolutely they did. Because what the what the community never is clear to them is that they need outsiders to breed. Like yeah. the assumption is that they look so fucked up because of inbreeding. But what the we find out through the movie, not explicitly enough if you're not paying attention. You have to be yeah. paying attention to realize this, is that they actually occasionally allow in outsiders so that the one member of their community who looks like a human can fuck one of these humans. That's right. And then they have babies. And that's actually how they avoid inbreeding, right? Right, and uh, the 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 suggestion here is much like a fish. They have a fuck ton of babies because I guess these people are fish people. They, this is the Atlantis oh. part, I guess, is that they're fish people. I don't fucking know. But the point <laughs> is, is that she's gonna have their like next generation from fucking one dude, and uh, and then that doesn't work out because she dies. And so like, well, she movie, doesn't just die; she gets killed. <laughs> she gets killed by the awful doctor lady, and no one stops to go. Oh, by the way, outsiders, you've just murdered our future. I have a question for you, Liam. Yeah, uh, because you were already talking about the colonial aspect of it. One yes. of the things I was thinking while watching it is that this movie feels like a Vietnam allegory to a certain extent, right? I mean, people coming, you know, people who, Americans in particular, coming to this island where people are seen as backwards, seen as as almost uh, prehistoric to a certain extent, treated like they have no intelligence whatsoever. Americans feel like they can come in, take whatever they want, that they can impose their will upon them. These people fighting back with all the resources that they have available to them in a certain style, but also being kind of overwhelmed by the sheer, you know, uh, strength, let's say, of what the Americans bring to the table. But at the end of the day, no one ends up happy from the whole situation. I felt like it might have actually been an intentional allegory as I was watching it, though I don't know if the, uh, the Western people involved necessarily were bringing that to the table. Well, I mean, the writers could have been bringing that to the table. Cause it's possible. Both of them are, uh, you know, not amazing, but accomplished enough that I think they're capable of that kind of insight. I don't know. If you ask me, Doug, I, I, I'm not a person of the 70s, so maybe I don't have Vietnam on the mind. Sure. I was just thinking about America. Like, I was thinking about the American story, you know? <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about, honestly, any colonial story where it's like uh, – we're probably going to die here, but also gold. I mean, think of how many conquistadors died in the jungles in South America because they were sure there was a gold city, of which sure. there was no gold city. And 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 you know, I don't know, Liam. I think if we keep looking, <laughs> <laughs> it's that we just got to keep chopping down the Amazon. That's the problem. We haven't chopped enough of it down. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, I, I do think there is something allegorical there to some extent. But I also think. Um, it's not clear to me, you know, if you ask me about the that aspect of it without me knowing the writers, right. I would actually say, no fucking way. It's the other way around. This is a movie about, you know, act, I'm not convinced the movie isn't even more sympathetic to the white people than, than I want it to be in some right. ways, at least the way that it plays right now. I, I actually kind of think... This is this might seem crazy to y'all, but I actually kind of think that 
uh, maybe Eddie Romero toned down. I I think if you're a Filipino director trying to get some money from America, he might have toned down some of the criticism implied in the script. Because I think it's there, but I don't think it's quite as sharp as it could be. Because just under the surface of this is a movie where where it could go either direction. This could actually be the worst white folly ever, or these are just some poor white people caught by monsters. Monsters on an yeah. island! Doesn't and it be- feel like there's 15 minutes of, of of exploration of the culture of these people that's been yes. cut out entirely? Absolutely. Yes, 100%. So it's just hard to say, and, and, and this is what I'm getting to, actually, let me, you know, I never really said fully what I think of the movie, which is that I don't think it's enough of any one thing to work. Like, I, I think it it relies on those water scenes because it doesn't have enough movie there for their, for their to have the movie without those water scenes. But then the water scenes aren't sexy enough because it's not an exploitation film. Like, it's, it's not exploitative or trashy enough, but there's not enough fun adventure for it to be the adventure film it wants to be. Right. If you think about it, even for the kind of level of action, low-budget action it has, it doesn't have a lot of action either. Like, there's just not enough happening on screen to justify the movie. It's barely a good episode of an adventure show. You know what I'm saying? And so that kind of bums me out a little bit, despite the fact that I think there are elements there that are great. Like, I think there are parts of this movie that could be really good if recombined in a different way. And, and, and that goes from the most obvious aspects of, like, cutting out some of the, the more exploitative elements. But I would also say even, like, the editing is rough. It, it just, you know, knowing that there are a lot of Eddie Romero films that I don't know that I would call them art, but they're certainly – high entertainment sure. this film doesn't qualify for any of his films that i've seen now i haven't seen all of his movies you know he, he probably had some that were also not great but this is without a doubt the worst of his movies i've seen mm. and it's not just because oh it's too kitty like you could make a pg movie that's fun there's a ton yeah. of them mm-hmm. this is not fun either it's just it just doesn't work for me in any directions now is it terrible no it's fine it just feels like it could be so much better if they committed in one direction. If this yeah. is just going to be a PG, you know, kid-friendly adventure film, then have some more damn adventure. Even some more like vine swinging and running in the jungle would be better sure. than Absolutely. what we have, which is a lot of intense conversation on a beach and some guy trying to justify the fact that he's the greediest man that's ever existed. Like, it's just it just doesn't it just doesn't work for me, Doug. It also doesn't help that Patrick Wayne's character Vic Mathias is. Like why why should we like him right what what right. is it it's he's not as greedy as the other people he goes to the island with but he still knows what he's doing he still like, there the intention is if there's any resistance at all that they're going to threaten if not outright murder the people on this island and he he has no particular issue with that whatsoever he's only good in comparison to evil characters you know uh, so it's 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 really Even tough that, to he, the only one who. Uh, the cards are on the table when they're beating up the Barracuda. And I and I think that's where the film, I think, does sort of subtly suggest the racism of our characters, right? Right. Because this guy could have been offended when they were just beating the shit out of the out of the Barracuda, out of poor. Yeah, yeah. Deals. Earlier in the movie, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and only the woman is upset. But then again, the woman doesn't give a fuck about the native culture that you know that 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 I think that's very accurate, right? That to a certain sort of Western sure. academic, absolutely, she doesn't like their brute violence, but she doesn't really care about preserving the culture of these natives that much. She does a little bit, but not that much. Yeah, yeah. It's only the threat. Like there's a part where she's wandering off by herself, and she finds this kind of uh, um, 
like kind of religious temple, and she goes and tries to touch the things that are in it. They're, they tell her, "Don't touch it." You know, all they're they're just being forceful. They're not threatening her necessarily. They're just like you, we don't want you to touch that thing. But it's just like it's like, why were you there anyway? What the fuck were you doing over there? Right? I mean, you got to expect that they don't want you messing around with their shit. It's their shit. Um, but uh, I mean, I do no. kind of like the the central kind of idea of it, which is if you go to a place and you think you know better than them, and you try to take all the shit. Things are going to end up badly for you. Yeah. So maybe, maybe, uh, maybe take a little, take a little insight from the people who actually live there. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, we talked a little bit about how it, the Atlantis aspect of this story feels a little superfluous. I got to ask. One of these tropes that comes up a lot in movies is the it's the legend of Atlantis. You know, yeah. it's it's something yeah. that we sort of live in the culture. Doug, do you like that? That world, that exploring those ideas, I, I, you know, I am aware of your uh, uh, giant Namor tattoo on your chest. But other than Namor and your love of his winged feet, how do you feel about Atlantis as sort of a, a story trope? Do you know it's kind of funny where I'm from in Newfoundland? I wouldn't say that the people in Newfoundland give a shit about Atlantis, but there is a strange connection to the idea of Atlantis. The because sure. um, Sterling... you're all mutants. Well, I mean, <laughs> maybe it's our our propensity for the sea. But uh, there was a gentleman named Jeff Sterling who basically r- ran all of the, the the major television station in Newfoundland, which is called NTV, and he ran the, the local like the major paper and stuff like that. He basically was the media mogul of our entire province, and he was a very strange guy. And overnight on that TV station, sometimes he would just deliver long like diatribes directly to the camera and things like that. It was just a really strange thing. But he also created comic book characters. One of them was called Captain Newfoundland, but also like. The, the the ads for his TV station would be like, the spirit of Atlantis lives in Newfoundland, that sort of stuff. So there isn't this kind of weird connection to this underground. And you remember uh, uh, there's a comic book character in the X-Men, Liam, that we discussed on one of our podcasts before. That also, oh, is there? <laughs> uh, named Marina, who's is sort of like an underwater Atlantis-esque character. So you would think I would have that connection. But I have to say, Liam... I don't give a fuck about Atlantis. I feel like <laughs> I feel like people's like fascination with this idea comes from the un, the idea that like that that in the deep ocean anything can be there. That it's like it's like another world and so much shit, like we, we there's so much of it is unmapped and there could just be anything, all these creatures, all the this this amazing shit that we just don't know about. But I think at this point in 2022, like people there's, I'm sure there are some people like James Cameron who still think that way, but like I don't give a fuck about that anymore i I prefer we stayed out of the goddamn ocean at this point and just tried to preserve it as much as possible because it feels like every time we explore these things to find out what's in them we also destroy them at the same time so but also that that fascination of like an underground or underwater civilization that is existing it just i don't know it's like even if they they rose from the sea tomorrow and and you know wanted to make peace with us We've been, what could we say except for sorry for destroying everything? Yeah, sorry for the trash island that we made yeah. in the Pacific Ocean. Sorry about what that. are your thoughts on microplastics? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sorry for burning. I mean, I, I agree, Doug. I think, you know, whatever hidden parts of the ocean are left, you know, could there be like secret, you know, dinosaurs in there and shit? Like, actually, there could be. I don't know why sure. we give a fuck. Like, yeah. I don't understand. It, there's nothing down there, I don't think, that's going to like 
help us save the planet from dying. And the only hope we have is that once we've destroyed the surface of the planet and we all die off, maybe some of those vampire squids in the trenches can, <laughs> you know, eventually evolve into intelligent life. Who knows? Maybe I mean, I'm glad story. it's still studied. I'm glad that people are studying it and and finding out, you know, more about what's sure. down there because yeah, of, yeah, yeah. in some ways, I guess it could help us, you know, maybe there's an enzyme that could help fight you know, a disease or something like that. I mean, that, all that sort of shit, but that's all very self-interested, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's, I, You know, I get it. I guess the only reason it appeals to me is because there's something about the Conan of it all. You know what I mean? Sure. So, like, the, the idea that there were civilizations upon civilizations before we started writing anything down. There's something that appeals to me about that just because it makes sense, right? Like, uh, there's there's something like what is it thirteen thousand years of uh, human history before anyone was like oh we could write stuff you know what I mean <laughs> and, and and the idea that like well for that whole thirteen thousand years we were just picking fleas off each other in caves it's like no I just don't think that's probably accurate you know I think stuff happened during that time and so I find that fascinating to think about that. That, that there was something going on then that wasn't just us singing to Neanderthals and them singing to us, right? <laughs> uh, and, and, and so, like, you know, I, I like that. I like that idea as, like, a, as a thing that doesn't need to be proven. You know, again, I don't need a fact about it. It's just something to imagine, right? And there's something of tying Atlantis to that. But then the idea that, like, also we're going to find fish people is, like, it's just not interesting to me. Like, if, if we... If you want to tell me there's intelligent life millions of miles out into space, that could be interesting because, like, I get why they haven't said anything yet. But if there's a whole civilization of, of humanoids in the ocean, they must fucking hate us. Like, I don't yeah, that, right? know. There's nothing about that that's fun. And the only reason it gets to be fun for me is when you have, like, a Namor who, like, literally is like, I fucking hate humans. Yes, like, exactly. I love it. I love the, just, just his <laughs> attitude about it is so goddamn good. So much better than Aquaman. Aquaman is such a beta, you know, like, beta cuck. I yeah. like how Namor has been pissed. Like he started being pissed in like like the 1920s or 1930s, and just think about how much worse we've been since then. Oh yeah, I also like that he has that that like he has more in common with the X Men than he does with like anyone else. But he's like, yeah, I'm a mutant, but fuck everyone. I'm not going up to the surface. You suck up there. <laughs> love that. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. A dog, a barrel, ridiculous. That one anyway. Yeah. yeah. Anyways. <laughs> Well, you know, this this podcast, though, it might eventually become a, a Filipino cinema podcast, uh, or or maybe at least the American movies made in the Philippines. Uh, that's not really what it is. It's a Vic Diaz podcast. So we got to spend some time talking about the man, Vic Diaz. And I got to say, when he first showed up, Doug, I was a little worried this was going to be a, a, weak, a, a, a weak showing from our man. Sure. Uh, just because it, he felt like a side character. And then when they brought him back in multiple times throughout the movie, it gave me a little bit more hope. But I, I want to know what you think of Vic Diaz as the Barracuda. Manuel the Barracuda. At first, I was worried about the same thing. Uh, so to, just to explain who this character is, he's 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 shown at first as being a fisherman who he is basically the only outsider who can come to this island. And they trade with him, basically. He pays... Uh, in supplies in exchange for these pearls, which he then brings to the mainland and then sells, uh, or I mean mainland, whatever he brings to to the Philippines and sells these pearls to whoever will buy them. And I guess that's part of how he makes his living. And we don't know more much about him. He, he certainly isn't like the Vic Diaz characters we're used to 
up to that point, right? He seems very sympathetic, right? I mean, he, he isn't doing anything wrong. We don't think of him as the sleazy Vic Diaz character that we're used to seeing. And I was so overjoyed to find out that when he pops up in the final half hour to try to help these folks off the island, there's part in the back of my mind I'm like, oh, that's that's a nice thing for him to do. Seems out of character for a Vic Diaz uh, character to do. And then, of course, when we find out that he was actually just trying to steal all their pearls and fuck them entirely over, uh, that then I was like, yes, Vic Diaz showed up. So uh, there's a suggestion at first that he's just going to be kind of a minor secondary character, but uh, I should have known better. And then uh, in the, the final act, we realize that uh, he's he's just like a Vic Diaz character normally would be, and he gets to have a, a few fun moments and a, and a fight scene at the end, and even laugh uproariously, even though there was a suggestion that he could be tossed into the water <laughs> or, or beaten senselessly uh, just moments before. I had a lot of fun with him in this. I mean, look... At this point, especially when it comes to these, this era of movies, we kind of know what to expect when Vic Diaz shows up. And I do like him stretching his wings a little and doing things different. But sometimes in a movie, especially a movie like this, where you have Sid Haig doing a very Sid Haig-ish performance as a very Sid Haig-ish character, when Vic Diaz shows up, you want him to be doing the same thing. And I thought I wasn't going to get it. And I was happy uh, in the final half hour to realize that I indeed did. I agree. And, and, and even more than that, I want to say... I don't know if it's intentional, but he does serve a certain function of reminding us that, like, um, that the the that the various people who live in this world also have agency. Like, yes. whether this is the Philippines or not, it is very clear that Sid Haig and uh, all of our various like white dude characters and our doctor character, they're all interlopers. You know, yep, uh, they're interlopers on the islands they came from and they're interlopers on this island, even though our main guys, our main people look white. They're like white fishy people. So they're not humans, you know, but the idea is that wherever they are in this world, they're interlopers and they keep acting like it. They keep yep. acting like they can do whatever they want without consequences because nothing matters. They can they, they have all the agency in the world and fuck everyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and so, like. I kind of I kind of love that he shows up like, oh, you thought you could just boss me around because I'm some asshole. But guess what? <laughs> now I'm going to take all the fucking pearls and you can eat my ass. Like the yeah. part where he says like, oh, maybe I'll let you go with 50 pearls. I was like, motherfucker, that's right. Fick the yeah. ass. You that's know? exactly like, what they were going to do to him. I mean, even when he comes to save their ass, they're just offering him the bare minimum of what they want, right? And, I mean, it would be different even if we didn't see them beat the shit out of him for no reason earlier in the movie. Right. Uh, yeah, it, it does feel like – it feels like his revenge is well-earned at that point. Right, exactly. And that was – considering how often we see him play characters that are either just comedic or just truly despicable, right. getting to see him play a guy that, like, honestly, I was almost rooting for a little bit. I love that. I love it, Doug. It made me really happy. So, you know, I, I, I don't know that overall I can recommend this movie to people because – um, it just doesn't quite deliver some of the stuff that I want it to. You know, it just kind of lets me down in some ways. On the other hand, for those of uh, people who listen to the show because they're interested in this journey with Vic Diaz, you get some cool Vic Diaz in this movie. I think it's kind of worth it for that, honestly, if you care about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, uh, there are going to be movies that we cover on this podcast where the Vic Diaz content is so small and so uh it, 
unnecessary to the plot that it's it's going to be hard to recommend just on that front alone but i will say that if you're a big vic diaz guy that you get enough of it here to make it worthwhile and i should note as well that um that this movie beyond atlantis is going to be featured in the upcoming season of mystery science theater 3000 so vic diaz and mystery science theater 3000 together at last I mean, I know the jokes they're going to make are going to be ridiculous, but you know, maybe I'll check. Maybe I'll check it out. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, on the next episode, we're going to be talking about 1977s, <laughs> which is crazy because I thought this movie was from the 80s based upon the the poster. <laughs> Too hot to handle. Her mission: seduce and destroy. Her deadliest weapon is her body. Yes, yeah. that there were multiple exclamation points on that. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, too hot to handle. I'm excited for the pure trash of, of whatever this movie is going to be. Uh, until then, Doug, if if people want to know more about this show or some of the other shows that we're a part of, uh, where should they go? Uh, well, I should let people know that if you want to check out Too Hot to Handle before our upcoming episode, it's available to stream on the Tubi streaming platform. Uh, and if you want to check out more episodes of uh, Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz or our other podcast, the best place to go first is over to Cinepunks.com, which has lots of wonderful other podcasts aside from Cinema Smorgasbord, including uh, lots of great writing there as well from people like Liam and myself and others. Uh, you can check that out on all the social media platforms that you peruse at Cinepunks uh, on Instagram, Twitter, and then on Facebook. If you want to check out more of our episodes uh, of this podcast specifically, our archives of this and other shows, go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com or on Twitter at cinemasmorg. That's S-M-O-R-G. You can find Liam on Twitter at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. You can find me on there as well at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. All right. Thanks so much for listening, y'all. We appreciate the support. Uh, hopefully, you know, we'll hear from you as far as uh, your journey through Vic Diaz movies. <laughs> but until then, we hope you have a good night. The continent of Atlantis was an island which lay before the great flood in the area we now call the Atlantic Ocean. So great an area of land that from her western shores those beautiful sailors journeyed to the south and the North Americas with ease in their ships with painted sails to the east Africa was her neighbor across a short strait of sea miles the great Egyptian age